special edition of Flyover Country with Scott Jennings. Our next interview with a candidate for governor, the Attorney General of Kentucky, Daniel Cameron, first elected in 2019 by dispatching one of the oldest names in Democratic politics, Stumbo. He seeks to dispatch another, Bashir, this fall. Can he do it? Our interview with the frontrunner, Daniel Cameron, next on Flyover Country with Scott Jennings. Attention passengers, we ask that you please fasten your seatbelts at this time and secure all baggage underneath your seat or in the overhead compartments. Flyover Country with Scott Jennings is prepared for takeoff. And this is Flyover Country. I'm Scott Jennings. Thanks for being with us. And in the studio today, the Attorney General of the Commonwealth of Kentucky, Daniel Cameron and a Republican candidate for governor. Daniel, thanks for being here. Scott, thank you for having me at the Flyover Podcast. Yes, it's a happy to be here. By the way, we started, uh, uh, we were listening to the podcast the other day, and now they're running commercials on it. So, FYI, yes. (laughs) That's uh, impressive. We don't know how they get on there, and we don't know... how what choices are made to do that but qualcomm thank you we heard you last week <laughs> i and assume it, qualcomm this is a money making endeavor well, now. Yeah. Say, yeah. if somebody's making money from that just it's, you know yeah. Yeah. probably not us yeah, yeah. Oh, anyway. if, i don't think it's us <laughs> but we're so glad to have you we're having in the leading candidates for governor the republicans of and we want to give you a chance to tell our listeners and republicans in kentucky why you're the best to be the next governor we're in the middle of a of a hot race, and this primary uh, has gotten uh, amplified here in the last uh, few days. So let's let's set it up. You are the front runner. You are a famous person. You're a bona fide Republican celebrity. Everybody likes you, and I think everybody acknowledges that. Your opponent, I'm just your friendly neighborhood teddy bear. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Uh, your chief opponent at this point is Kelly Craft, former ambassador of the United Nations. She has spent on television to date. A little over $5 million via her campaign and her affiliates, plus another amount of money that I can't calculate in direct mail and other kinds of advertising. And based on the latest polling, she has come somewhat close to you, six points, according to Emerson. And then your other chief opponent is the Ag Commissioner, Ryan Quarles, who you serve with in Frankfurt, who is a two-term agriculture commissioner. In the latest polling, he was sitting at 15%, a little bit farther back from you and Kelly. So it looks like the thing has become an actual race. I want to start this podcast by asking you, Daniel Cameron, why should the Republicans nominate you and no one else for governor? Well, I think I'm the best candidate to win in November, and that's the ultimate mission is to make sure that we beat Andy Bashir in November. And I've got a track record. Some folks are running on ads. I'm running on a record. And I've spent the last three years standing up for conservative values and constitutional rights. And I've shown repeatedly that I'm a fighter, that I'll do what's right without fear or favor. I'll do what's right, whether they protest on my front lawn or disparage me on uh, MSNBC. I'm always going to do what's right by the men, women, and children of our 120 counties. I think this day and age, you need a governor who is willing to stand up for the the values of their state, Uh, and also push back against the excesses that we see coming from the Biden administration and those woke ideologies that are trying to come in from the coast, whether it be uh, California or even from Massachusetts. And so we have got to make sure that we have leadership in this state that stands firm for our values. We don't have that in our current governor. uh, And, you know, there are some folks, again, that are running ads against me, but I want to make sure I put all the focus on emphasis on beating Andy Bashir, who's been bad for this state. Over these last three years, we've seen murder rates go up in the largest cities. 
We've seen lockdowns and shutdowns. We've seen vaccine mandates threatened. That's all been under Democrat leadership. That does not reflect the values of Kentucky. And so that's why I'm jumped in this race and, and am hopeful that I'll win the May 16th primary. Again, I think we're building a coalition that allows us to do that, but also builds a big enough coalition and a big enough movement to win in November. You mentioned that other campaigns are running ads, and some of those are attack ads against you. Kelly Craft and her, her affiliates are running attack ads against you. So uh, you decided to start your ad campaign with a positive ad about your faith and your criticism of Andy Bashir. But let me let me go back to the the attack ads against you because I think it's important when attack ads are run for people to be able to answer that. That's right. You've been accused of being an establishment teddy bear. You've been <laughs> accused of not being strong on coal. You've mm-hmm. been accused uh, of um, having um, non-conservative views on uh, criminal justice reform. I want to take a minute and give you a chance to to answer those charges and push back. I'm sure uh, what you see is uh, distortions of your record. Well, they're they're all false in their lives. Uh, when it comes to the coal uh, ad, the, that one in particular, one that plant is open. Two, uh, we certainly uh, that plant is in West Virginia, and three uh, are not and never will be in the position of wanting to shut down coal plants. The argument that we made before the Public Service Commission was that Kentucky, and as a Kentucky leader, I shouldn't want Kentuckians to pay for or subsidize a plant in another state. I think anyone who is leading a state needs to look out for the interests of their folks. And the subsidizing of that plant was going to come in higher utility rates. And the interesting thing about that case is we intervened in it along with KIUC, the Kentucky Industrial Utilities Council. And one of the lead members of KIUC is Alliance Coal, which is owned by Joe Kraft. And so now it is uh, uh, there is great irony in someone who was defending that position uh, when it occurred, now trying to make a separate argument. Again, I know it's silly season, and you're going to have uh, <laughs> things that happen like that along the way. But again, we have always stood up for coal, always stood up uh, for the energy independence of the state. We are the seventh largest generator of coal in the country, and because of that, we have the 12th lowest utility rates or energy rates in the nation. As the attorney general, I've stood up and pushed back against the ESG movement that is trying to move into the state. ESG is a direct threat and danger to our coal industry because what it says is that the uh, asset managers in Chicago and uh, working with uh, the Biden administration and asset and fund head fund managers in New York are trying to destroy our coal industry and trying to take the investment accounts of pensioners and other retirees and use that uh, to uh, essentially uh, hold hostage any investment to our coal and natural gas industry. I've said on the record as the attorney general that we need to stop that in Kentucky, and that cannot be against uh, a, a part of the investment decisions that are made here in Kentucky. When it comes to um, some of the other ads, I mean, I'm in uh, supported by over 100 law enforcement officials in my last campaign where I was endorsed by the Fraternal Order of Police. I've been endorsed by Donald, Donald Trump, and he knows how strong I am on crime and on law enforcement. And so that ad is laughable as well. What I've said, and this is, continues to be my position, is that if someone shoots at, a, at that time a mayoral candidate, uh, when Quintez Brown shot and tried to kill uh, uh, Craig Greenberg, now the mayor, my position has been 
that he should not have been out of jail in three days simply because he, not even him, other people could crowdsource money to get him out of jail. Right. I think that system is flawed. And if Kelly Craft and others want to support that system, that is on them. But I firmly believe that we should not have a system where uh, uh, you could try to murder a mayoral candidate on day one and three days later be out of jail. Uh, you are the current attorney general. Um, you uh, obviously have a law enforcement responsibility in Kentucky. Um, Louisville has become a violent city over the last several years. Became really violent last week. We had a mass shooting at the old National Bank. We had a mass shooting at Chickasaw Park. We had shootings in between. What's your current disposition on the violence in Louisville, both as attorney general today, but then thinking of yourself as governor? Is there something for Frankfurt to do here? Uh, is there something for government to do here? I mean, I think that's, that's you know, the Republicans think it's the, the, the people. Democrats think it's the guns. Where's Daniel Cameron on, on the violence and sort of the public policy issues? Well, it was heartbreaking to see what happened um, a week ago, Monday. And I, I went down there after everything occurred uh, at the bank and got an opportunity to shake hands with uh, our law enforcement community. And let me just say uh, to any folks in our law enforcement community that are listening, thank you. Thank you for being willing to run towards danger um, when others are running away from it. Thank you for being willing to sacrifice yourselves uh, so that we can live and sleep soundly um, in in our communities across Kentucky. I appreciate you and obviously uh, ask that anybody that's listening continue to pray for Officer Nick Wiltz, who is still in the hospital and uh, dealing with a, uh, a critical condition. When it comes to what happened, look, there is evil in this world, and we have to acknowledge that we are broken people and we live in a broken world. And so that is first and foremost what we have to understand, and we've got to get back to the basics of this society of, of trying to build strong families and strong communities that look out for one another. And I firmly believe in that. And I, I recognize that there are going to be policy discussions and policy debates that come along. I'm not supporting any gun control. And I think that uh, is certainly something that I'm hearing other uh, politicians and other government officials talk about. But as far as I'm concerned, uh, I, I don't support any gun control. I do believe uh, that we need to make sure that we're looking out for the mental health of all of our citizens. And I think as governor, let's just take a larger and broader approach or look at this. There is violent crime in Louisville, and uh, our major cities have seen a spike in violent crime. In Louisville, there is not a Kentucky state police post. It is our largest city. It is our largest county. And yet there is no police post, Kentucky state police post here in uh, Jefferson County. I think one of the first things that I'd like to do, and I'd obviously like to work with our law enforcement community more broadly, but let's put a police post here in Jefferson County as a signal to folks, to the bad actors that live in these communities, that we are taking crime seriously. Governor Bashir has sat on his hands for the last three years because he is afraid of the far left of his party that might come out and attack him if he makes any signal that he needs to be strong on law enforcement. I don't have those concerns. I just do what's right by the laws and by the values of Kentucky. And again, I'm willing to take the slings and arrows. And I think that's something that has been demonstrated by these last three years. And so I want to work with law enforcement, our local law enforcement, and establish a Kentucky State Police post in Jefferson County 
to help with the violent crime issues that we have here. Our flyover panel is here. Jerry Crawford's here and Kevin Grout. Go ahead. So you did a great job explaining why Kentuckians should vote for you. Can you explain how? How do you what's your path to the nomination and then what's your path through November? Well, the path to the nomination is just to get to as many places as we possibly can and um, uh, have as many folks join this movement as as we can. And that requires a lot of travel, which we've been doing. That requires getting uh, ads on television, which, as Scott noted, we've already started to do that, uh, and making sure that we have a strong field game, which we're working on as well. Um, Gus Herbert and others on our team um, are working diligently to make sure that we are building out an apparatus uh, that pushes people to the polls because we know turnout can be uh, tremendously low in the midst of a primary, uh, in a gubernatorial primary. And so we're working hard to make sure that our most, um, our strongest supporters are reaching out to other people to get them to the polls on May 16th. And then when it comes to the general election, look, um, we are a big tent party. And when I mean uh, big tent, I'm, I'm talking about the GOP. And we're going to have to have a lot of different factions that are willing to support our candidate. And I think I'm best situated to get all of those people on board, whether it's uh, folks that are, are strong in the MAGA movement, whether it's folks strong in the right to life movement, whether it's people that are strong related to law enforcement, uh, whether it's folks that just care about the educational opportunities of their children. I think we can coalesce all those people into uh, our movement and get them inspired and um, invigorated to win in November because you cannot, you cannot have a governor who will sit idly by while the Department of Justice labels parents as domestic terrorists because they care about the educational opportunities of their kids. You cannot have a governor sit idly by while the Biden administration, along with these hedge fund managers I talked about earlier, tell you depending on what day it is, they want to destroy the coal industry by 2035 or 2050. You cannot have a governor sit idly by and say nothing about the southern border while we know that fentanyl is coming across the southern border and then it's coming into our communities and killing our people. That cannot happen for the remainder of this decade. If you give Andy Bashir another term, he will be quiet on this issues and he will also double down on some of these far left policies. We, Kentucky can't afford to have a governor who says that men can play in women's sports. That's essentially what Governor Bashir said when he vetoed that legislation last year. You cannot have a governor uh, who is completely uh, content to allow children under 18 to mutilate themselves. I mean, let's call that what it is. We cannot have that sort of leadership in our state. You and I uh, together, and I'm talking to those that are listening right now, have an opportunity to change that on May 16th, but also in November. And so I'm hopeful uh, that we build this coalition. We've got to win back some of those counties that we lost um, uh, last year. You know, we lost Scott County. We lost uh, a couple of Northern Kentucky communities. We lost Warren County. We've got to bring those people back into the fold. The way that we do that is to talk about education, to talk about the issues of crime, and to, and make Governor Bashir own them. He wants to run around and talk about economic development. I, you know, it's kind of like, and for some of you all uh, that are older, you'll understand this. It's kind of like Millie Vanilli. 
he's running around singing someone else's song that he never, <laughs> he's taking credit for what the General Assembly did. Mm-hmm. It's like somebody who uh, landed on third base or was born on third base but thinks they you know hit a triple. <laughs> and so we have got to make sure that people recognize over the course of this campaign that Andy Bashir does not reflect their values. He's more aligned with Joe Biden and in any some instances is more liberal than Joe Biden. And we can't have that for uh, another four years. You raise a number of issues uh, there that you're uh, talking about on the campaign trail. Uh, I want to start with education. Uh, you, um, my understanding is Friday night in Warren County, you called for the firing of Jason Glass, the uh, superintendent uh, here in Kentucky. Other candidates have made mention of the school issue in their ads and their commentary. Um, is this a day one priority for you, uh, General Cameron? It, it is it is immediate change needed at the top rung of the educational bureaucracy in Kentucky? Scott, it's absolutely needed. Um, you cannot have a commissioner of the Department of Education go into a committee in the General Assembly and say that if a teacher expresses any concern about the gender ideology curriculum that is coming through, that they need to find another job. That just can't happen. My response to him is that Jason Glass needs to find another job, and I'm going to help him do that (laughs) when I become uh, the next governor of Kentucky. And so, yes, this is a priority one, two, uh, or day one and day two effort because, obviously, I want a board of education there that reflects the values of Kentucky. And if we have a board of education in place that reflects those values, we will make sure that we have an education commissioner that understands that our schools – are not about liberal propaganda and liberal indoctrination. They are about preparing students to um, be productive citizens, and that means understanding reading, writing, and math. Look, we, are, we have to recognize that we are not only fighting against uh, other states in our, 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 our country. We're fighting against China. We're fighting against Russia. We've got to be prepared for this global in- economy in a way that we haven't before. And I and make no mistake about it, the folks in in China they're not they're not caring about gender ideology or what are your pronouns. The folks in Russia they're not caring about those things. What they are caring about is trying to beat the United States. And Kentucky has to step up to the plate, make sure that our students are in a position uh, to be the best and most effective they can be, to um, make sure that they're putting food on the table for their families, but also helping sustain and lead the effort to fight back against um, these radical interests that are trying to creep into Kentucky, but also keeping at bay uh, Russia and China and all those that are trying to uh, 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 change our democracy and way of life. Jared Crawford. So, uh, Daniel, when we we think about sort of day one priorities or some of those issues that you see as as the biggest ones facing the state, for the last few years you've been able to lead on some of them, pro-life issues, school choice issues, but course, Attorney General can't do everything. Um, so when you get in day one, what do you see as some of those major policy issues that the state's facing? Because I think this presents the biggest dichotomy between Republican candidates and Andy Bashir. He thinks everything is roses and peaches. And our side's looking around like, what the? We got fires all over the place right. we got to put out. Um, outside of the work that you've done, and you can speak a little on your record too, what are some of those issues that you see on day one as the biggest? Well, the, the, the biggest ones, and we just highlighted one, is education, making sure we have a board of education in place that uh, appoints a commissioner that reflects our values. The other thing that we need to take a very hard look in, and this is a day one beginning the process, 
uh, is uh, looking at the cabinet for healthy health and family services to make sure that we have uh, CHFS in place um, that it, that it ultimately makes sure that we have better health outcomes for all Kentuckians. You all know this. I know uh, that, and your listeners know this, that we consistently rank in the bottom in terms of health outcomes. And so we need to look at CHFS to ensure that we have uh, MCOs and, and a healthcare process in place that makes sure that our uh, patients and our providers are in a position to increase the outcomes for uh, citizens here, or health outcomes for citizens in Kentucky. The other thing that I noted is that um, I want to work with the Kentucky State Police to make sure we get a post here in Jefferson County to make sure that we are um, making it very and painstakingly clear that we want to do everything we can to address the violence epidemic that we have uh, in Louisville, Kentucky. We got to obviously continue the good work that we've started in the AG's office on the fentanyl challenge. Uh, that's certainly something uh, that I want to do as well. And again, I brought in nearly $900 million in the AG's office. So we're going to continue to fight on that front, continue to make uh, the good gains that our legislature has done uh, on the income tax rate to get it closer and closer to zero uh, as we possibly can. And so those are some big ticket items. And finally, or the final thing I'll say is that essentially there are three buckets within Medicaid right now. There's uh, able-bodied, there's means testing, and then there is um, those medically, uh, that for those that uh, Medicaid is medically necessary. The governor just, that first bucket I mentioned, the uh, able-bodied folks, he just expanded that pool, but he put no work requirement with that. And so one of the first things that I'll do is apply for a waiver to put a work requirement, because we've got, uh, I mean, you all know this, we've got an abysmal workforce participation rate here in Kentucky. The only way is that well, that will change is if you have a governor in place that doesn't encourage people to sit home like he did during COVID for two years and to rely on benefits that never come. Um, it, and so we've got to change the mindset and we've got to change how we view work in this state. And the best and most effective way for a governor to do that is put a work requirement for these able-bodied on Medicaid. Let me talk about drugs for a minute. <clears throat> You've been, obviously, Attorney General dealing with the opioid crisis, both on the criminal justice side, but also on the, the, the civil side. I want to talk about that. There's also policy questions in this campaign and that, and that you'll have to face in the future. Um, Kelly Kraft has said she opposed the uh, medical marijuana uh, bill that, that passed and is very skeptical of that. Uh, I believe in the Spectrum Forum you said you—, you uh, you seemed a little lukewarm on it, but that you were supportive of it. Um, first, let me just ask about looking forward. It's now law. Are you concerned uh, that we're getting too permissive uh, or creeping toward too permissive with drug culture, given what we know is going on in Kentucky? And how would you treat this issue uh, over the next four years as governor? Well, um, to to your question, yes, um, we are certainly getting too permissive in our culture uh, with drugs, and we're seeing there, there, there is an a steady effort being undertaken to uh, legalize every drug, and it's why I've had some reticence with um, uh, the use of marijuana for therapeutic or medicinal reasons, uh, mainly because the law enforcement community has expressed so much skepticism in that they see this as a slippery road uh, to full out legalization, and so my view of this is that we need to have parameters in place, and I know that. 
the way that this is set up, it won't go into effect until roughly 2025. So we've got to have strong parameters in place that our law enforcement community can get behind so that, one, we can regulate it, but, two, have strong assurances that we will never have recreational marijuana in Kentucky. There are a lot of studies that are coming out right now. In fact, a couple of weeks ago in the Wall Street Journal, there was a study about the impact on children as it relates to the usage of marijuana and its connection with psychosis. And so this is something that we're going to have to be very critical of and discerning of when it comes to uh, the usage of marijuana, regardless of what context it's in, whether it's medical or anything else. And so I'm going to be fully opposed to any uh, additional movement on uh, medical marijuana that would get us further down the field to recreational Uh, And the other concern that I have expressed is that there are uh, folks uh, right now, the Jalisco and Sinaloa cartels, that are now making fentanyl to look like candy. Mm. And in addition to that, they are lacing it with every drug that they possibly can. And so we have got to be, again, very mindful of the fact that as we take the step with medical marijuana or, or, or even have this conversation, that fentanyl should always be uh, uh, going in the back of our mind. How is this going to impact our efforts to curtail the amount of fentanyl that's coming into Kentucky? And so I'm going to continue to fight that fight because, again, I know that there are so many um, parents right now that are scared and concerned about what their children are being exposed to and the drugs that exist out there that they uh, might ultimately uh, consume. And so, again, Understand that medical marijuana has passed, but we need to have heavy regulations on it and to make sure that we never get to recreational marijuana. Let's talk about your record as attorney general and fighting the opioid crisis and, and taking on drug companies. Give us just unspool it for us. I mean, you've, you've been involved in this every day since you took office. Where did you start when you took office? Where do you think we are now after your, your term as AG? Well, I started with uh, uh, inheriting Andy Bashir's uh, cases that had brought in zero dollars. <laughs> and now we are in the process of bringing in $900 million. And that money is going to be divvied up over a course of years. 50% of that's going to our counties and cities, and the other 50% is going into what's called the Opioid Abatement Advisory Commission. I know that money's already coming into the state because I've talked to multiple county judges and mayors who've said, hey, this money is coming into our counties and cities. We appreciate it. We're now taking the steps to understand how best to use these dollars to help our communities. The Opioid Abatement Advisory Commission is reviewing applications right now and are going to start distributing those dollars uh, any day now. So that is essentially um, when it comes to holding accountable the wholesalers, manufacturers, and distributors of opioids. I said, look, we need to quit talking about this and, and quit taking symbolic actions and actually do something that's going to bring money into the state. And that's what we've done is rather than, again, talk about it, we brought money into Kentucky. I'm proud of our record on this, and we're going to keep working on it. Um, there's obviously always more work to do on this front. This money, I, I'm hopeful, is, again, it won't be an end-all, be-all, but it'll be money that helps with interdiction efforts. It'll be money that helps with rehabilitation and other restorative measures to to bring people uh to a place where they can provide for themselves and their family and break these cycles of addiction. Kevin Grout. I'd like to talk about the life issue. Um, I got to work with you in the Senate uh, to confirm 
President Trump's yeah, first Supreme Court nominee. Yeah. Um, and you, you, you have gone back to the Supreme Court and won there on the life <laughs> issue. You've been endorsed by Kentucky Right to Life. Uh, from your position, can you give us a, a status update on where pro-life is in Kentucky and where the next governor could take it? Well, look, I'm not ashamed to say that since uh, last August, because our office has been defending the pro-life legislation that was passed by the General Assembly, since last August, the abortion facilities have been closed in Kentucky. So right now, we're essentially in a um, uh, we're in a holding pattern. The state Supreme Court said that um, uh, some parties that tried to tried to um, file suit to uh, uh, determine the constitutionality of the Human Life Protection Act essentially didn't have standing, and so. Uh, while there's, uh, those parties didn't have standing, the Human Life Protection Act continues to be in effect, which has essentially closed down the abortion facilities in, in the state um, and has left an exception for life of the mother when it comes to uh, if an uh, abortion is necessary. And so that is the, the status, right? And look, I understand this is a very sensitive topic, and I understand there are people that have very sensitive or very uh, strong views on this, um, Mackenzie and I have a 15-month-old at home at Theodore, and, and this is very per- – we got to see Theodore uh, at six weeks. And so this is a very personal uh, uh, issue for us, uh, and we need to promote, much in the same way that I heard uh, Tim Scott talk about this last week, across the country I think we need to pr- promote a culture of life, and I'm going to be a part of uh, that community that promotes that culture of life. We had uh, Mississippi Attorney General Lynn Fitch on the podcast maybe a month ago, and again, she took the case all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court, obviously uh, maybe the most important case in in a long time. But she had a sort of vision of a, uh, what does she call it, a new Dobbs era as opposed to post-Roe. Empowerment agenda. Yeah, in which the Republican Party embraces... You know, new ideas in terms of, uh, you know, uh, child payment and uh, paid family leave and Mm -hmm. things like that. When you think about the kind of future of the pro-life movement, are those and especially the sort of changing nature of the Republican parties? We're on the I made the same joke with Lynn Fitch, uh, take from McConnell. We're the offensive coordinator on this issue now. And so we get to be kind of proactive what do you see as this sort of new Dobbs era, and what are some of those proactive approaches we can take to to embrace mothers and women and and help the foster care system, things like that? What are some of those policies you'd you'd hope to embrace? Well, look, let me I one say thank you to uh, General Fitch for her uh, amazing work uh, in the Dobbs uh, decision, uh, and she's right. We are in the ball is now in our court, and we are certainly in a new era, and I do think it it requires that. Um, conservatives as Republicans, you know, we've often talk uh, talk about life, but we do need to do more than just talk about the lives of the unborn. We have to talk about, um, you know, family policies that can be put in place uh, to help foster an environment that makes it easier to raise children. Look, we've got a 15-month-old at home, um, and I see every day what McKenzie has to deal with. And, and, and it, there's two parents, supportive parents at home, Trying to make sure that Theodore has everything that he had, or that he, that we can possibly give him, and so I can't uh, imagine if you're a single parent, you know, trying to undertake uh, and understand what that looks like. And so, as a conservative, as a Republican, we certainly need to look at ways in which. And I'll tell you, a good model for how to do this is our pregnancy crisis centers across the state. They have gotten really good at including fathers in this process and including. 
uh, community stakeholders that help build a, com- a community around mothers and fathers to help make sure that they can have the best future for that child that's, uh, that's possible. You brought up your wife, Mackenzie, yeah. and, uh, and your baby, um, Theodore. Um, would like to give people a sense of uh, what it's been like for you as attorney general. You uh, weren't married when you got uh, elected, and <laughs> you right. got married. And shortly after you got married, uh, you were plunged into the middle of mm-hmm. the Breonna Taylor mm-hmm. uh, situation here in Louisville. And then shortly thereafter, you uh, uh, and your new wife experienced having uh, all kinds of protesters on your front yard. Mm-hmm. And, um, and you know, you, you became a, a nationally known, like a household name mm-hmm. over this case. Uh, was wondering if you could just reflect a little bit about, you know, when you decided to run for AG, you could not have known what was in your future um, other than you wanted to serve the public. Right. But then all this was thrust upon you. And uh, as a man who's building a new family, mm-hmm. I wondered if you had any personal reflections on that now, how she reacted to it, and, and what McKenzie means to you in your life as you go about this campaign. Well, uh, she means everything. And, um, you know, Wes, we've talked about this race for governor. One of the first things we thought about is, you know, why are we doing this? You know, is it is it for identity? Is it for status? And sometimes folks would say, well, why are you giving up? the safe confines of the attorney general's office. And I ultimately, you know, tell people is that because my identity is not wrapped up in a title, you know, I'm much more comfortable in being called Daniel or, or son or, or, or father or dad or, or husband than attorney general. And, you know, if I'm fortunate to be governor, my status won't be in that. It's again, as a Christ follower, it's as a husband to McKenzie and as, as, as a, a dad to Theodore. And that's what my identity is. You know, when I became attorney general, I didn't have full-time security. And then, you know, the middle of 2020 happened and now we do. And that, that was new for McKenzie because she, when she met me, I did not have uh, any of that. And so that was a, a big change, but she has been uh, so uh, gracious uh, to me in walking with me through this journey and through this process. Uh, and quite frankly, I could not have done it uh, and cannot do it without her. And uh, it has been an, an an honor to serve as the attorney general. And when I took the job, I said, I'm going to do this job without fear or favor. And, and when I said that, I didn't know 2020 was going to come around the corner. <laughs> but uh, I hope people recognize that I've tried to do this job in a way that reflects our values reflects my responsibility to our laws and our Constitution, and reflects my heart. I, I hope people that are listening or have heard me in the past know that, you know, at the end of the day, I try to reflect that I am a Christ follower and that I'm on mission for Him and trying to be the hands and feet like a lot of folks I know here you know, with the time given to us in this world. On the Breonna Taylor case, um, obviously uh, was one of the most emotionally wrenching uh, episodes in, in recent Kentucky history for you and, and for the families involved and for the city of Louisville became a national uh, issue. You you got letters from celebrities, right. you know, begging yeah. you to predetermine right. certain legal outcomes. And uh, those same people were quite upset uh, mm-hmm. with you when the when the case uh, that you had charged to investigate was, was ultimately decided the way it was. Um, I was wondering if you could take us into that whole episode mm-hmm. and where you started, where you wound up. And, and now that you've had some time to reflect on it, do you feel uh, as good today about the job that was done mm-hmm. and the outcomes that you achieve within the confines mm-hmm. of your office as you did the day you gave the press conference to announce the results of the grand jury? Well, I certainly uh, feel uh, very 
uh, good about the process that we undertook and proud of the work that our investigators and prosecutors undertook and knew that when we took the case, it was going to be challenging. And, and this is something important to remember mm-hmm. because you ended up taking this on as a special matter mm-hmm. because the Commonwealth's attorney in Jefferson was conflicted out. Right. And so and so uh, what I think is important for people to know is you could have stepped aside or put this somewhere else. Right. You could have given it to anyone else in the state, but you decided to absorb it yourself, which frankly, I think shocked a lot of people, you know, mm. brand new yeah. AG, never held public office before, relatively uh, young guy. Yeah. And, uh, and you decided to absorb it. Well, why did you do that, actually? Well, we took the case because at the end of the day, that's what the attorney general's office is for. It's, it's to take these really tough and challenging cases. And when I was running for attorney general, I told our local prosecutors is that we will never come into your jurisdiction and take over a case unless you ask for it. And if you ask for it, we're not going to pawn it off, particularly if it's a very sensitive and challenging case. We're not going to pawn it off on another prosecutor in another part of the state to duck our duty and responsibility. And we took the case and uh, had no preconceived notions of, of it other than we were, as most people, uh, mourning the tragedy that occurred, which was the loss of a life. If I've talked to people across the state, they understand that the loss of Miss Brianna Taylor's life was a tragedy. And they say that without equivocation. They say that because it is true. But at the end of the day, our responsibility was to the law and to apply the facts to the law as they existed, not as not how people on MSNBC or some of these celebrities wanted to talk about it. And again, during that whole process, we tried to do it in a way that was factual and, and by the book and did not deviate from that script. And we didn't allow, there were, you know, obviously, again, folks from the national, um, uh, whether it be from Hollywood or from the national media that wanted to, to come in and sort of create a, a, a narrative, uh, but at our job was to apply what actually happened to the law. And we had career, again, prosecutors and investigators that worked on this case, proud of the work that they did. I understand that at the end of the day, not everybody, and I knew that going in, that not everybody was going to be uh, pleased with that decision, but we did it in a way that reflected our laws here uh, in the state, and I'm proud of the work that was done. The case really did take on a, a narrative mm-hmm. uh, for a lot of people that didn't necessarily match up with the facts right. and the reality. Um, I remember uh, watching Saturday Night Live mm-hmm. and hearing your name right. mentioned, um, and that was a surreal moment for me since I know you, right. but I was wondering when, when you realized, when, when did you realize this had started to basically take on this national narrative that you knew wasn't exactly matching up with, with what you knew the facts to be? And, and was it surreal for you? And did you ever get concerned that the general public was going to uh, basically come to an, an understanding of this case that just just isn't what happened and how that might impact your own future? Yeah, well, um, I, I was coming back from, McKenzie and I were coming back from my mom's house, and we were heading home, and I remember getting a text message from uh, Philip Bailey. And Philip said, you've just been stung by the what I thought was the beehive. And I said, I don't know what that is. <laughs> and my Twitter was just blowing up. And then I realized I'd misread what he'd said. It's, I'd been stung by the beehive because Beyonce, yeah. I guess those are her, her followers on Twitter, had put something out uh, 
you know, essentially saying that I needed to do my job and, you know, arrest um, the, uh, the officers. And so at that moment, I knew, okay, this is going to be uh, a pretty significant case. But what I've as said, and when I took the oath of office, uh, I said, I'm going to do my job without fear or favor. And I was put to the test with this case and um, certainly uh, committed myself to do that, do, mean conduct this investigation uh, without fear or favor, and it did so. Um, and look, I, you know, when I took this job, and I said this earlier, you know, my identity is not in being the attorney general, and that is not how I see myself. I, I see myself as someone who has been given a role and has been put there by the public to uphold the law and defend the Constitution and do the job based on that, not based on narratives, not based on preferences, but to do it based on the laws as they are written. And that's what we did in this case. And again, did it without fear or favor, did it without um, any... Uh, consideration of what that would do to, to my future, because that, at the end of the day, that, that is not why I'm put here, is to look down the road and see how this will impact me down the road. I'm, I'm here to do a job, and I'm here to do it, um, and I've, I've been put in this job uh, as um, essentially as, as a trust by the people of Kentucky. And so again, I know it was a, a tough case and a very sensitive case and created some heartache, and i not immune to that. I understand it and felt it. Um, but um, as I told people, whether it was that case or the fact that we went into state court and federal court to uh, fight some of the governor's COVID restrictions, that wasn't based on animus. That wasn't based on uh, party affiliation. That was based on the governor is infringing on your constitutional rights. When President Biden decided to force vaccine mandates on our states, that wasn't based on animus. That was based on the president was trying to um, infringe upon your constitutional rights. And when it came to uh, the uh, Taylor investigation, that wasn't based on any preference. That was based on my responsibility to the law and to the Constitution. And I hope people understand that. Again, recognize the sensitivity in all of these situations. There was a life that was lost, and that hurt uh, not only Louisville, but that hurt across the nation. And um, I understand that. And um, at the end of the day, I've been charged with a duty and a responsibility, and we did that to the best of our ability and proud of the work that our office did. You probably know more about the workings of the Louisville Police Department than just about anybody else in the state because of what you've you've been uh, doing for the last few years. Um, it was interesting to me that, that – nationally, what people knew about the Louisville Police Department recently was Breonna Taylor and then the DOJ civil rights investigation. And then the old National Bank shooting happened, and we saw the heroism Mm -hmm. of the police. Um, I think we live in a world where police are unfairly maligned. Mm -hmm. And it is leading to uh, massive um, personnel reductions, Mm -hmm. uh, and they can't find people who want to be police. I think it's leading... Uh, to bad outcomes for the cops. Um, is that something you're feeling out there when you talk to law enforcement, just the overall working environment for, for police in this, in, not just the state, but everywhere? Oh, I, I constantly uh, feel and get a sense from them that um, the heavy weight uh, 
of the criticisms, the disparagement that they receive constantly. And it, it, no, it normally comes from people on social media or, um, you know, some of the folks that have the largest and loudest voices on social media platforms always seem to denigrate and disparage them. And so what I've tried to do is I've gone across our 120 counties and say there, there is a silent majority out there that respects you and appreciates you and is grateful that every day you run towards danger. And I think you need to have a governor that is saying that regularly and that our law enforcement community hears that message. Because, Scott, as you noted, I mean, again, whether it was Officer Nick Wilt or Officer Galloway or the other countless folks that responded, uh, because make no mistake, uh, Monday was a tragedy, but it could have been so much worse if the uh, law enforcement community wouldn't have responded as quickly as they did. And so we need to say constantly to them that we appreciate them and that we thank them. Um, And that's what I've tried to do in um, my role as attorney general as I travel the state is that as I visit with law enforcement, I, I tell them, thank you for running towards danger. Thank you for trying to interdict these drugs and get fentanyl and opioids off our streets. Uh, thank you for sacrificing yourselves so that um, our families can sleep soundly in our homes. Uh, it's certainly, uh, they certainly hear enough of the bad. And uh, again, they need leadership in this state that is willing to say the good, uh, despite what uh, criticisms, criticisms come with that. Do you think Andy Bashir has fallen short on supporting police officers in Kentucky? I think Andy Bashir has fallen short on most things here <laughs> in Kentucky. And I mean, uh, this is this is this is one of the clearest, I think, differences. I mean, we live in a world where party differences are now getting muddled by lots of different things. But it strikes me this is one of the clearest differences in the two parties. Support for rank-and-file police officers. you feel it out there? Oh, I absolutely do. I, I think, again, the Democratic Party, their leadership, and those that are in leadership in the Democratic Party that are scared and remain silent because they don't want to offend the far left, uh, they, they essentially say nothing. Uh, and so it's left to leaders in the Republican Party, in the conservative movement, to constantly beat the drum to say, you are supported you are valued. We are grateful for you. And uh, I certainly am going to keep doing that uh, as long as I've got a platform to do do it from. Jared. You bring up sort of an interesting uh, difference, I think, in governing strategies, too. You mentioned that kind of vocal minority or sometimes it's kind of this mob rule who literally came to your doorstep. Um, but it feels like Andy Bashir at times, whether it be on COVID, has a very small group of people he sticks with. Or it's the sort of vocal minority that drives our education or drives our police response. We saw cities very quickly defund police because of a loud few, mm-hmm. uh, and that the more doors we break or you know the more trash cans we set on fire, somehow that makes our cause more just. Mm-hmm. And I think conservatives generally have always been this kind of cooling saucer to say, hold on, maybe it's the James Madison in us this is you know let's let's not fall victim to these uh you know these these vocal minorities how do you see that sort of influencing your strategy or your governing strategy versus sort of appealing to a very loud vocal minority whether it be on you know sports issues uh, cultural issues our education system the you know the response to the covid pandemic how do you see that sort of differing from i think what bashir has done and a lot of democrats are doing well, you know, I, I try to pride myself on being an attorney general and being a leader in this state that 
has a pulse on not just on what's happening in Lexington and in Louisville, but in all other counties in this Commonwealth. And I think that, you know, our governor um, has gotten into the bubble, if you will. And you saw that when it came to his COVID policies. In, 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 in no other situation would we accept that you would have a governor that would tell small businesses, you're not, a por- you're not important, you're not essential, and you need to stay home. But we, he would tell big business that they were essential and that you could continue to go to work. We as citizens simply should not tolerate that. And we, again, as if I'm fortunate to be the nominee for the Republican Party, I will remind people of that every day, that you had a governor in this state that told you that if you wanted to go to church, you couldn't, but you could go to a liquor store, you could go to a big box store. He told you that if you were a small business and you were trying to provide for your family and for those employees that perhaps work for you, you couldn't do your job. But the big businesses that likely probably could have sustained themselves because of loans that existed and all those things, they could continue to work and flourish. That's just unacceptable. That's, that is not the American way. And you've got to have leadership, much in the same way that you saw DeSantis in Florida or um, uh, Christy Nome in, in South Dakota. Those folks said, no, we are going to allow everybody to say play by the same rules. And at that point, it was, well, the CDC is providing this guidance. Now, we know subsequently some of that stuff was just kabuki theater. But, <laughs> at, but, right, but at that time, we said, well, if this is good enough for the big businesses, why can't it be mm-hmm. good enough? For the small businesses. But again, because the governor was just listening to a small group of far left folks, he made those decisions and they are still impacting us today. Look at the loss of curriculum in the education sphere. Kids are still impacted by the decisions he made to shut down schools for two years. Look at our unemployment uh, or our workforce participation rate, still abysmal because of the decisions that he made during the pandemic. So you've got to have leadership that is listening to every county and the needs of every county, not just a few that have the loudest platforms on social media. You're on the Flyover Country podcast. I'm Scott Jennings. Jared Crawford is here. Our guest that you've been listening to is Daniel Cameron, the attorney general and candidate for governor, and also Kevin Grout. Go ahead. <laughs> thought you forgot me there for a second. <laughs> I guess I walked out. Um, Scott mentioned your ad before about churches and your great work uh, suing the Bashir administration when they shut down churches. Can you... Take us behind the curtain. What's coming next? What's your next line of attack? What's your next ad? Well, um, so, uh, so the re- reason we wanted to make sure we got that ad out first was to just remind people that, hey, during COVID, you know, a lot of folks were talking, but we were actually taking action. And when in, uh, governor decided to pick winners and losers, decided to shut down churches, we went into uh, federal court and after nine days got churches reopened. Uh, our next ad, um, which I think uh, by the time this airs, um, will will be on television, and it's going to be about uh, what we kind of just discussed, which is that uh, we need a governor that's going to stand up and back our law enforcement community, and that's the type of governor governor I'll be. I'll be a governor that's out in our communities, beating the drum for law enforcement, trying to recruit for law enforcement. Uh, to make sure that folks know that it is a noble profession, that it is a needed profession. And so that'll be, uh, um, again, by the time this airs, uh, um, that ad should be running. 
campaign for you is different than it is for Kelly Craft. You're raising every dollar. Uh, and my understanding is, after looking at the reports, is that you just had your biggest fundraising quarter. Do you feel momentum for your campaign right now? You have been outspent on the air about five to one, which I'm sure doesn't feel great. But you you did have a pretty good quarter from uh, from a, a gathering contributions perspective. How do you, with a month to go, do you feel like you have the momentum in this campaign? I feel that we've got a lot of donors from across Kentucky, and these are small-dollar folks that, you know, are giving us a dollar, five dollars, ten, fifteen dollars to say that they're invested in this campaign. And that's uh, to my earlier point about building a large enough coalition, a broad enough coalition that obviously wins in May, but but gets us to our, our ultimate goal, which is to beat Andy Bashir in November. And so I feel like we've got some strong um, – uh, momentum behind us. We've got some strong winds that are pushing us towards this finish line and will get us across that finish line in first place. And, uh, you know, obviously we've got to work hard and we've got uh, a little less than a month to go now. And uh, we're just going to give it our all. Uh, McKenzie's going to events for us. Um, you know, we've got other surrogates that are out there for us. Uh, this is a truly a family and team effort. And um, Has it, Teddy picked up the stump speech yet? You know, <laughs> okay. You know, he he's just been so maligned and attacked by Kelly Craft that uh, he he. Ted, uh, so for you all that my our son's name is Theodore, and uh, sort of, there's some irony that uh, the ads are are referring to Teddy Cameron because literally that that's our child. But, uh, so he's you know he's taking it all in stride and just seeing when he's going to make his uh, campaign debut. That's good. That's good. Let's talk about um, Donald Trump. Yeah. You're endorsed by Donald mm-hmm. Trump. Um, and, um, I think there was some question about this early on because obviously Kelly Craft was looking at, at getting in and she hosted him at the Kentucky Derby has been a big donor to him has raised a lot of money for him, but he went with you. You've spent time with him in the Oval Office. In fact, I think I recall you being on his short list for the Supreme Court, uh, last time around. Um, what kind of impact has he had on your campaign? Does the Trump endorsement matter to you? Number one, number two, are you in touch with the former president? And number three, do you expect we're going to hear from him again before the May primary? Um, uh, number one, I think there are a lot of Kentuckians that uh, really valued his policies, and he brought a lot of working men and women into this party and spoke for them in a way that other folks, frankly, had not. Um, he was a fighter. Uh, he continues to fight to this day, and I think he appreciates folks that fight for the values and of their state, and he saw that in me. Look, I mean, it's no secret that, uh, you know, Kelly spent six months before she got in this race telling folks that she was going to get the Donald Trump endorsement. Uh, she hosted him at uh, the Kentucky Derby and wished him happy birthday and uh, uh, on Twitter and social media. And then the next day, I got the, the Trump endorsement because he cares about a person's heart. He cares about uh, if they're going to fight for the values of their state. And he's seen that from me. And uh, when I had the phone call with me, he said, I'm, I'm, I'm with you uh, because I know that you're going to stand firm. You're going to stand strong. You're tough. Um, and you're going to do what's right by the laws of your state and look out for your people. And so that's why he endorsed me. Obviously, it is a big deal, again, because there are a lot of folks um, that he resonated with, particularly, particularly here in Kentucky. And we've seen that uh, in polling that's been done. And we've seen that that has um, occurred because people are invested in Donald Trump 
because of the way that he fought for them. And yes, I, I stay in touch with uh, the Trump uh, orbit and have talked to him a couple of times. Obviously, after Kelly got into the race, he did another endorsement video for me and continues to, we continue to have very uh, constructive conversations with his team and, um, you know, am, am uh, certainly appreciative of his help and support and look forward uh, to his run in the primary. And certainly I'm in supporting him in that effort. Uh, and I hope that uh, at some point he'll make his way to Kentucky. You uh, are closely affiliated with Mitch McConnell. You work for him. You're closely affiliated with Donald Trump. Um, and uh, spent time with him, obviously, and earned his endorsement. Um, being someone who has uh, sort of bridged the gap between two wings of the Republican Party, does that make you the best person to drive party unity after the primary? And do you believe, based on the way this primary is unfolding, that we are going to have Republican Party unity in Kentucky? Because to me, one of the greatest dangers or surefire uh, ways to losing to Andy Bashir would be if we can't get all the Republicans together once a uh, tough primary is over. Um, how do you how do you feel about all that right now? Well, I absolutely believe that I'm best positioned to build um, that coalition and and bridge all these different factions together uh, to create that unity that is going to be necessary to to win in November. Uh, I think whether it's um, folks that align with President Trump or uh, people that find themselves more akin to Senator McConnell's leadership style uh, or folks that, that, that love Thomas Massey. Uh, I think I am in, in a unique position because of the work that I've done over these last three years in building the case uh, for conservative values and conservative principles and, and showing that I am my own man. Uh, I think I'm in a strong position to, to get uh, people on board to build that unity that we need. And and I hope that I have run this campaign in a way that hasn't, um, um, that, 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 that has made people feel like after, you know, that, that I've, that I've taken to heart the, uh, uh, the 11th commandment, if you will, that Ronald Reagan often talked about is that, you know, we shouldn't attack one another. I've, I've tried to be very careful in what I've said because I am, understanding that after the primary, we're going to have to all come back together. And so I'm not going to say anything to disparage other people that are in this race. You're not going to see attacks from me because that one is just not who I am. But two, I understand that there is a larger goal and mission, which is we have to beat uh, Andy Bashir in November. We have to make sure that folks know that this, this state has conservative values and needs and wants conservative leadership. And I think it'll send a message to the rest of the country uh, that Kentucky is on board for 2024 to make sure that we have a Republican nominee for president that is going to remove Joe Biden from the White House. Let me talk for a minute as we get into the last few minutes of this interview about your race. Mm -hmm. African-American candidate, you made history in 2019 as the first standalone African-American to win statewide in Kentucky. Um, you'd be Kentucky's first black governor. Mm -hmm. Do you feel the weight of history on you uh, in terms of what you represent? You know, you in many ways, I think, represent, a, a, you know, the next generation of Republican leaders. You're very young. 
uh, comparatively to you know other politicians. And, uh, <laughs> My uh, wife tells me I'm not very young. Yeah. So I hear that. <laughs> but 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 it's not usual for there to be young black conservatives mm-hmm. serving in the kind of office you are, seeking the kinds of offices you've sought. And it would be historic for Kentucky. How do you carry that with you every day? Do you think about it a lot? Is it is it at the top of your mind? Do people talk to you about it on the campaign? You know, I I don't. No one talks to me about it on the campaign, and I don't really think about it that much. Obviously, from time to time, you think about. Um, you know, if I reflect back on these last three years, I think about you know being the first independently elected uh, a black American to to hold uh, statewide office here in Kentucky. But what I've often said to people is that honestly. You know, whether I'm in uh, Pike County or Jefferson County or Fulton County or all the other counties that are here in Kentucky, uh, folks don't care what you look like. They care about your values. And can they build a and develop a connection with you? Do they do they sense that you have concern and care for them? That's what's of top, top of mind to them. And so, yes, I understand that if I was fortunate to win, that that would... There'd be some historic uh, uh, component to that. But at the end of the day, you know, I ran or am running for governor because I firmly believe that we need strong conservative leadership in the state. I think I've demonstrated that over the last three years, and I think I can help provide that for the remainder of this decade. And I think Kentucky needs conservative leadership, and we need someone who is not only going to stand up for our values, but is also going to push back against these woke ideologies that are trying to creep into our state. Uh, and again, I think I've shown that I'm willing to take those tough fights, take those slings and arrows, um, and 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 do the, the the tough things and make the tough decisions that are necessary when it comes to leadership. And I hope whether, again, whether you live in Pike County or Fulton County or any of the counties in between, you've seen that from me the last three years. And I hope you respect it and uh, hope I can earn your vote in the May primary and ultimately in November. One more question before we go. You were brought up in Hardin County. Your mama. Yeah. Mama Cameron has been a huge influence Mm -hmm. on your life. I thought we might have you talk about your relationship with your mother. I know you go see her every week. No. Well, uh, she is a a prayer warrior and uh, someone who has... uh, I, I, she texted me uh, last Thursday, maybe, to say that they were having a, a prayer call to specifically pray, pray for me and Mackenzie and our family in the midst of this campaign. Uh, and she's taught me a lot of of good lessons. And my parents were small business owners, and I fondly remember my mom working in the coffee shop and making uh, espressos and lattes and bagel sandwiches and all all sorts of stuff. And you know, when it comes to work ethic and, uh, you know, perseverance and being committed to family, uh, that's my mom in a nutshell. And she loves the Lord and will, uh, whether she's uh, helping out with the jail ministry on Sundays or volunteering at, at, at Clarity Pregnancy uh, Crisis Center in E-Town, she is sharing the light of the Lord and, uh, she is a, a phenomenal woman, and, and I'm grateful to have learned from her and continue to learn from her. Uh, she's been a real blessing to me uh, to have as a, as a mom. 
Let's wrap up, Daniel. Give me your 60-second elevator pitch. Why Cameron and not Kraft and Quarles, and why Cameron and not Bashir? Why Cameron for next governor of Kentucky? Well, look, I believe that Kentucky is at a crossroads, and we can have conservative leadership or we can have leadership whose mere presence in the governor's office emboldens the far left. And I think I'm the only candidate uh, that can win in November. I'm the only candidate that has been endorsed by Donald Trump Kentucky right to life, over 100 law enforcement officials. And the reason they've done so is because I'm running on a record and I'm not running on ads. I'm running on the fact that when President Biden wanted to uh, thrust vaccine mandates on Kentucky, I went to federal court and got those stopped. When Andy Bashir wanted to close down churches, I went into federal court and got those open. I've brought in nearly $900 million to the state to help with the opioid epidemic, and I've been fighting to preserve the coal industry. So time after time, when leadership has been needed, conservative leadership that is based on constitutional principles has been ne- have been needed, I've stepped up to the plate to do what's right by Kentucky. Kentucky needs conservative, strong, principled constitutional leadership. Again, I offer that. I'm running on a record. I'm running on substance. I'm not running on ads. The proof is in the pudding with me. You know what I'm, you're going to get. You're going to get somebody that's strong, is willing to do the job without fear or favor. I hope I can earn your vote in May. And you and I together uh, can make sure that we have a governor and a commissioner at the Department of Education that understand understands that our values mean something and that um, our Kentucky can be a better and brighter one in which our values are represented and reflected. Uh, so I hope, again, you will join me in this effort to win in May and win in November. Attorney General Daniel Cameron, candidate for governor. Thanks for being here. You've been a great guest. Thank you, sir. I appreciate you guys. Flyover Country with Scott Jennings is a production of Bluegrass Media Lab, coming to you from the heart of Middle America, Louisville, Kentucky. If you like what you heard, subscribe to Flyover Country on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your favorite podcasts.